Spaceships are smaller than string and living in your brain. The worldwide conspiracy has discovered there is an even bigger conspiracy. Yes, yes, no. Everything you know is wrong. Hello and never goodbye and don't look behind you, but it's me and I'm with you again to look at the arcane wonders of our wonderful world. Everything, Everything you, you know, know is, is wrong. 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 Put your seatbelts on cause you're in for a howling ride I am the narrator The voice that guides the blind Following up with your ears but your mind And allow me to take you back on four feet time To explain the significance of things you may think insignificant now But won't Further down the line This is a journey into sound Brought to you in living colour on WTDR There is nothing wrong with your television set we are controlling transmission. For the next hour, sit quietly and we will control all that you see and hear. You are about to participate in a great adventure. You are about to experience the awe and mystery which reaches from the inner mind on WTDR. It's happening. I can feel it. How would you explain it? It's beautiful. God, it's God. I see God. How do you like that? Why, it's preposterous. Thank you very much. I realize what I'm about to say comes a great shock. However, using great presence of mind, I'm counting on you to respond appropriately. Information in the form of energy streams in, streams in simultaneously through all of our sensory systems in the form of energy. And then it explodes into this enormous collage of what this present moment looks like. What it feels like and what it sounds like It explodes into this enormous collage And in this moment We are perfect perfect We are whole We are whole And we are doomed And we are doomed Whether you experience heaven or hell Remember that it is your mind which creates you Information in the form of energy Streams in Streams in Simultaneously in the form of energy, and then it explodes into this enormous collage of what this present moment looks like, what it feels like, and what it sounds like. It explodes into this talking about some pretty far out stuff with my guest, Bob Frisell. He's the founder of the breath alchemy technique and has been teaching breath work for over 35 years. And he's the author of nothing in this book is true, but is exactly the way things are. And his new book that we'll be talking about is catching the ascension wave, everything you need to know about the coming great awakening. And we'll be talking about this great awakening that we've been hearing about for many years, but we'll 
also be grounding it with an embodied breathwork practice that can help us through the obstacles to get there. So, Bob, welcome to the Magical Mystery Tour. Yeah, the Magical Mystery Tour. Wow. Uh, step right this way. I love the name of your of your podcast, Magical Mystery Tour. Yeah, you know, I would have liked to have been there back in the day. So speaking of titles, I love the title of your last book. Nothing in this book is true, but is exactly the way things are. What did that title mean for you? And I'm curious if if there's any of that element in relation to this book. Well, the answer to the first question is, I don't know. <laughs> the answer to the second question is, yes, there is. <laughs> so with regard to the title of the book, Nothing in This Book is True, uh, what happened is that actually it's in its 25th anniversary edition right now, so it's been out there. It, it is what put me on the map. I mean, nobody knew who the heck I was before that book came out, but all of a sudden I became well-known. So how did that happen? Well, I had made a decision four years prior to even beginning to write this book that the only way I would ever write a book is if a publisher comes to me and asks me. Uh, I was confronted by a client of mine, a breathwork client of mine at the time, who told me that she wanted to co-author a book with me. And I used, well, we don't have a publisher as an excuse. Truth is, I didn't think I had anything to say. <laughs> you know, I, I felt that writing a book was just a mountain that was too steep for me. And so I decided, I made a personal decision. I didn't tell her, but I said, the only way I will ever write a book to myself is if a publisher comes and asks, and I thought I was safe. But that's exactly what happened four years later. That is exactly what happened. And to cut to the quick on that, one day the publisher brought his daughter, who was 19 years old at the time, to meet me and just uh, talk about some of the stuff I was writing about. And I didn't hold back. I just went out there and just told her. And on the conversation back to the car, what she said to him is that, well, nothing he said is true, but it is exactly how things are. So that's what Richard, the publisher, uh, told me anyway. Now, whether that's exactly the way it went or not, or Richard just cooked up the perfect title for me, I don't know and I don't care, but we both agreed at the moment, hey, you can't do any better. That's the title. What does it mean? I don't know. Your guess is as good as mine. But I'll tell you one thing about that, in that it's, and it's consistent with catching the ascension wave, in that it really frees me up to write about some of the things that I do write about. Because I'm getting pretty far out there. I'm talking about the secret space program, and I'm talking about going back 2.6 billion years in the ancient builder race and the sort of things that they did and the impact that it had on us. And, you know, it's like I'm speaking of things that for many people, they would go, well, you know, that would make a great plot for a Star Trek series. But come on, what have you been smoking, man? This couldn't possibly be true. So I felt that nothing in this book is true. Well, heck, I can say whatever I want, right? You know, And I just kind of extended that a little bit into, into catching the ascension wave. But with that being said, I do qualify. You know, I don't just talk about the secret space program. I go into the history of it and how it came to be. And I give the details on where I'm getting it from. And the sources are really, really pretty good. So I <laughs> hope that answers your question. <laughs> well, yeah, some of the stuff in this book is pretty far out there. I've been hearing about a lot of it for many years, but I've been on the fence about a lot of it because 
for me, it wasn't even really relevant, most of it. Yeah. So I wasn't invested in it, in any of it. But it makes for interesting reading, and it does offer some interesting explanations for the <laughs> the kind of situations that we're finding ourselves in and the way things tend to go in our world. Well, for catching the Ascension wave, I'm just going to make the assertion that Ascension itself is real. And maybe a good place to start would be to just define my terms a little bit. When I talk about Ascension, what do I mean? I mean, you know, that's a term that's really been uh, out there for quite some time right now. And I'm not sure that, you know, many people really know what it is or if they really believe that it's real. So I think that that would be a, a pretty good place to just uh, take a moment and unpack that a little bit. Yeah, I've been involved in intensive meditation practice and psycho-spiritual work and also various forms of breath work since the mid to late 70s. But terms like ascension were never part of my vocabulary or the vocabulary of the people that I've been involved with. And, mm -hmm. and so they kind of sounded like new age tropes to me. So yeah, yeah, I'm really looking forward to you explaining that because I suspect that most of my listening audience well, I, sh I shouldn't make any assumptions, but uh, yeah, go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I'm, I'm glad you 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 put that out because really, I'm not coming at it from the from the viewpoint of a of a new age airhead. I'm very very grounded in what I do and consider that uh, what I write about, you know, is well researched and. I don't write about anything unless it really resonates with me on a very deep level and unless I've really taken a deep dive look into it to just see, you know, what's there and what's real and what isn't. But what I'm talking about ascension, what I mean is that it's a quickening. It's a dramatic raising of our vibratory rate. Nikola Tesla, probably the most brilliant scientist we've ever had, said, if you want to understand the universe, think of it in terms of energy, frequency, and vibration. Energy, frequency, and vibration. Well, we live within waveform universe, and everything within waveform universe is energy, it's vibration. And so we're living here on a third dimensional planet, and we're vibrating at a certain rate. What we do is we live in a culture that has long ago just totally identified on the mental side of things. We've literally become our mind. It's not who we really are, but it's what we've become. We're born into that. It's just kind of like an ongoing condition that we're literally born into. And the point being here is that the mind is polarized. It doesn't connect the dots. It doesn't see wholeness. It looks out at a world through which it perceives it's not really connected to and kind of remains separate from it because it doesn't see wholeness. It doesn't connect the dots. And the reason it doesn't is because it's polarized. And what I mean by that is that it's in a continual state of judgment. It looks out at the reality or at a person or at a particular situation. And if that situation or if that person doesn't measure up to the ideals that the mind is telling you that this person should be like or the situation should be like, we judge it. In other words, we make it wrong. And so that's something that's going on continually. And it keeps us out of the present moment. It also keeps us vibrating at a rather dense rate because it doesn't allow for the resolution of, you know, resentment and depression and anxiety and stress and just, you know, on and on with that stuff. 
So ascension, on the other hand, is a dramatic raising of the vibratory rate so that it's consistent with the energies in the higher worlds, in the higher dimensional worlds. And that's the energy of unity. The higher self within us is connected to source and as such it only knows unity and quite distinct from the mind. And the higher vibratory rate that's consistent with unity is joyfulness, inner peace, unconditional love, creativity, inspiration, compassion, and good stuff like that. It's vibrating, in other words, at a much, much higher rate than resentment and, you know, anxiety and uh, fears and limitations and limiting belief systems. And so ascension, that's one definition right there. Another definition I like of ascension is that it's the actual movement of the reactive mind, restoring it back to its rightful role. Never ever was it intended to be the master of our consciousness, always and only a faithful servant. But we've made it the master, unwittingly so. As I suggested earlier, we live in a culture, we're born into it, it's a condition that we're born into. And so if we restore, if we're able to restore the mind back to its rightful role, it becomes a very useful instrument if it's used properly. And so restoring it back to its proper role allows the true master, our heartfelt connection to source, the higher self to begin to shine through. And that's where the higher vibratory energies of unconditional love and joyfulness and inner peace, et cetera, et cetera, come from. So another definition of ascension is going on on an individual level, and it's going on on a collective level. And on a collective level, what I mean by ascension is that we live in a certain dimensional reality, a certain wavelength universe. Let's just call it third dimension. It's pretty standard agreement on that. And I'm making the point. I'm not just throwing it out there, but I'm just making carefully, step by step, making the point that we're living on a planet that is very much in process of moving into the higher density world of the fourth dimension. And so that's a much higher vibratory world. And in order to make that shift, we have to raise our personal consciousness so that's more in tune with the higher vibratory rate of inner peace and joyfulness and creativity and unconditional love, et cetera, et cetera. So is that making sense so far? Oh, absolutely. And it, it's interesting that the way the ego works is that it actually kind of creates its own reality. It gets lost in the maps that we create of reality and misinterpret the map for the reality. And then we argue with it and we override the reality, <laughs> which when you think of it in those terms is so preposterous and yet our entire species has been engaged in that practice for millennia. Oh, yeah, and for millennia, for sure. Yeah, well, point well taken, absolutely. Uh, where did I want to go with this? <laughs> yeah, so, so like the next step in unfolding all of this, you also talk about our evolutionary history in our solar system. How important is it to you to go down that avenue at this point and how relevant is it to this whole story? Uh, extremely, extremely relevant and extremely important. And so getting back to the idea, to the nature of ascension itself, uh, before I go there, and that's a great question, and it, it, it's definitely worth taking a look at. But for just a moment, I would just like to, you know, ask a question myself and ask of us, you know, ascension itself, is it real? And I will simply say that, yes, it is. And I'll point out that there are references to ascension in at least 35 different civilizations, and they've all been put into their religious myths. So we have the prophecies of Jesus. Well, it's consistent with that of 34 other cultures. There's 
same prophecies that are put forth by Jesus. They appear in the Quran. They appear in the Old Testament, in Native American spiritual tradition, in Celtic and Druid tradition, and Hindu scriptures are very similar too. They call it the Samarta fire. It's at the end of the age. And they also call it the Yuga fire. And you can go on from there. So the whole thing, getting into the relevance and the importance of cosmic history, if we go back 2.6 billion years, now this is not just me saying it, I'm referring to a document that I consider to be extremely relevant. It's called the Law of One. And if you go back 2.6 billion years to our neighbor Venus, this is when Venus went through their ascension. Now, at the time, 2.6 billion years ago on Venus, the population of the entire planet was only about 38 million. <laughs> a little, you know, maybe the conditions were a bit harsher on third-dimensional Venus than they are here on planet Earth. And of that 38 million people, about 6 million made it through into the fourth dimension. And they became known as the ancient builder race. And that also is the source of the Law of One material. And what the Law of One material says is that on a normal planet, it goes through three 25,920-year cycles. And what that is is also known as the precession of the equinoxes. Some people call it the Great Year. I have a whole chapter on it in my book just unpacking exactly what that is. But to get to what the Law of One says right now, you've got three of these 25,920-year cycles. And at the end of each one of them, you have the opportunity for ascension to happen on the planet. In other words, for a third-dimensional planet to go into fourth dimension, or fourth density, as they call it. I use dimension and density as interchangeable terms. They both mean the same thing. And so what they say is that normally, on a normal planet, about 40% of the population makes it into the fourth dimension at the end of the first 25,000-year period. And then at the end of the second 25,920-year period, most of the rest of the population makes it through, but there's still a few that haven't quite made it. They still haven't learned all their lessons. And so they are, quote-unquote, harvested at the end of the third 25,000-year cycle. Now, the law of one used the term harvested to mean ascension. And what they mean is that at the end of the third cycle, the planet no longer becomes, in their words, useful for third-dimensional life. And we can get into that if you want. Uh, they, yeah. they have a tendency for understatement. But, and so harvested means that those who are now finally, finally able to make it, have raised their vibratory rate enough, will be taken into the fourth dimension. Those who still haven't made it will be transported to another third-dimensional world where they can work out and learn their karmic lessons for as long as it takes. And that's just the way that it works, according to the law of one. But what happened here on Earth is that after the first, we're at the very end of the third 25,000-year cycle. Now, at the end of the first one, on Earth, nobody ascended. Hello, 40% is the norm, and on our planet, nobody made it. On the second 25,000-year cycle, only 157 made it through, and they became ascended masters, all of whom stayed with the Earth. And now we're at the end of the third 25,920-year cycle. And the great question is, well, what's going to happen this time around? And that's really what my book delves into. So why, why are, are we such dullards on this planet? Yeah, that's a great question, isn't it? Well, I spend a whole couple of chapters digging into that. And here again, it speaks to the relevance and the importance of knowing our cosmic history. 
So if you look at the ancient builder race, a benevolent race, and right now they're six-dimensional beings. I mean, they're, you know, they are so far beyond us that we can't even begin to imagine. To give you some frame of reference, according to the law of one, when you make it into the fourth density, it's more harmonious in every way that you can think of. More loving, more joyful, more inner peace, more you name it, you know, all the good qualities by at least a hundredfold than even your very best moments here on the third dimension. So to me, I mean, that sounds pretty good. That sounds like it's worth shooting for. But then they make the point, but it's still only fourth density. You know, there's still a few more higher worlds to go in until you transcend the whole thing. And so if you can imagine that fourth dimension is 100 times more joyful, more harmonious in every single way than even your best moments here, and that relative to sixth dimension, you know, that's so far off the scale, we can't even begin to go there. But that's where this law of one material came from. So according to the law of one, and not only the law of one, but also this is well known in the secret space program too, that the ancient builder race 2.6 billion years ago, they ventured out into our solar system and well beyond our solar system. And what they did was they built all sorts of pyramids and obelisks and towers and domes on our moon and the ruins of which are still there. Richard Hoagland uncovered that, unpacked that in the 1990s, and others have also. But they also ventured way out into the local star cluster that comprises 52 stars in our local system here. And they populated and built their domes and obelisks and you name it and whatever. And they also kept the peace for about 2 billion years. These are good guys. They wear white hats. And so by keeping the peace, I mean, everybody's watched the Star Wars movie the first three movies. In the very first one, we learn of the Death Star and Darth Vader and all of that. Well, George Lucas was definitely getting inside information because it's well known in the secret space program that what the ancient builder race is, they had a technology, well, let's just very simply call it a defensive shield that kept any would-be intruders out. And it worked very successfully for two billion years. I mean, that's a pretty good track record. But they also developed the ability and the technology to literally hollow out moons. Our moon is one of them. As far out and unbelievable as that seems, I submit that we could... <laughs> I spent a couple chapters going into that. But not like the Death Star in Star Wars, not used to conquer other planets. They were used to ward off would-be intruders. And also they were used to literally transport people from a third-dimensional planet that was about to, quote-unquote, be harvested, who were not ready yet for fourth dimension, to transport them to other third-dimensional planets. So this went on for about two billion years. But about 500,000 years ago, there was a group of beings in our solar system called the progenitor race on a planet that is now the asteroid belt between the orbits of Mars and Jupiter, but it used to be a giant planet called Maldek. Some people have also called it Tiamat. But these guys became infiltrated with negativity, and they seized this defensive grid and turned it into an offensive weapon and decided, hey, we're going to use this and go out and conquer other worlds. But the problem is, is they weren't quite as smart as they thought they were, and their timing was just a little off. They picked the worst possible time they could have, destroyed completely their planet, and it's the asteroid belt right now. It also destroyed Mars, which was at that time a moon of Maldek, and now a planet, of course, our neighbor. And so it's one of the factors that has allowed for us to become a very retarded planet. 
Because the question is, Tonio, you had a population on that planet of probably close to a trillion people. Now, what's going to happen to you when your planet is suddenly destroyed? And the best answer is, is that many of them were transported here to planet Earth. And so, to cut to the quick, we became a planet of backstabbing misfits. And that goes a long way to speaking to why nobody ascended after the first 25,000-year cycle. And this sounds so far out there that it couldn't possibly be true, but I don't just throw it out there. I do back it up. <laughs> So, yeah. yeah, it sounds like it couldn't possibly be true, but it also sounds exactly like it is. So <laughs> so for people who, who would probably very naturally think this is very difficult to believe, what is the source of all this information and why do you believe in that? Or why do you subscribe to this? Yeah, this well, it's more it's, it's more than a belief. I, 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 you know, I don't know if I believe in much of anything, but if I really dig into something very deeply and go beyond belief into a, a sense of innate intuitive knowing, then I'd say that's a little more superior than just a belief system. But to answer your question, where does it come from? Well, the primary source is the law of one, as I've indicated previously here. But more than that, the secret space program, there have been numerous whistleblowers that have come forth and revealed the details of not only the secret space program, but what they say is just common knowledge throughout the program. And the knowledge of the ancient builder race is very much, as they say, common knowledge. But in many ways, the most credible source came from, in 2015, from a then 93-year-old person by the name of William Tompkins. Now, William Tompkins, in 2015, at the age of 93, wrote a book called Selected by Extraterrestrials, in which he revealed that he had been a contactee ever since childhood by a group of benevolent ETs known as the Nordic Race, and that he had been in telepathic communication with them ever since. But he also, at a very early age in his career in the U.S. Navy during World War II, my goodness, the guy had a rather amazing job where he was in charge of 23 U.S. spies who had successfully infiltrated the German secret space program. Now, boy, it's where it starts to really get interesting. And what William Tompkins says as a result of his communication with these 23 different spies is that the Germans, and this is not the only source, I first heard about this way back in 1990 from a whistleblower by the name of William Cooper who talked about the secret space program. He didn't have the details on the Germans other than in 19, I believe it was 1936, he said, that they got their hands on a spacecraft, and he didn't know the details of it. But he did know that once the war was over in Pinamunde, there were just stacks and stacks of information on their spaceships, building of, you know, anti-gravity spaceships. So where it came from was their contact with a, a race of beings known as the Draco Reptilians. Now, this is a rather dark race. And so they approached the Germans and just gave them, just gave them the technology. And according to William Tompkins, also gave them brand new ships. And all of this was developed in a place under the ice in Antarctica, in a place called Neuschwabenland. And I first heard about this way back in 1990. And I'm sitting there going, well, I don't know if this is real or not, but boy, it sure is interesting. So I just held it for all of these years until it started coming to me in droves when it came clear to me that it's time to write another book. 
And this is when I got all the detail on William Tompkins and all the work that he was doing and all the work that the 23 spies were giving him that led to the development of our secret space program. And it just goes on and on from there. Uh, we could spend the whole rest of the time talking about that if you want. Uh, but there's other ground to cover, too. There is. So another question I have is about there are numerous alien races that have an interest in what's going on here. Why are they interested in us and how are they connected to us in terms of what's going on here? Yeah. Well, first of all, I suspect that the vast majority of them out there are benevolent, but that doesn't mean they all are. The Draco reptilians are rather nasty. And by the way, they still have a base in Antarctica, too, under the ice. They gave the Germans, you know, here here you go, guys. There's a little space you can have here. And of course, the price was that they had to begin to cooperate with the Dracos and help them go out and conquer other worlds. By the way, just to try and put a cap on that, I do go into great detail in the very first chapter in the book on the secret space program and on the German program and on the fact that, as according to William Tompkins, we've not only been throughout this galaxy, but other galaxies as well. Try that on for size, folks. (laughs) So just quickly, how do they travel in that way? Well, all of space is connected through filaments that you not only travel through, but you communicate through. And there's also stargates that make it very easy. You know, there is not only a secret space program, Tony, but there is definitely at least a two-tiered technology system. I mean, there's the tin can technology that NASA wants to tell us about, that they tell us made it to the moon, which I do not believe. But then there's the real stuff. And so the real stuff is, you know, let's just say it has been withheld from us, but there's enough whistleblowers that are coming out. So I don't know if they can keep the lid on that for a whole lot longer. Interdimensional space travel is no big deal at all. Various insiders have come forth and said that traveling from one galaxy to another, it's literally a piece of cake. I suspect that what you do is you go through one of the stargates and, you know, virtually in no time at all, 20 minutes, they say, you're in the Andromeda galaxy or wherever you want to go. So as incredible as that might sound, getting back to the whole idea of all the different ET races visiting us, how do they get here? Well, that's how they do it. And a lot of them are coming from higher dimensional worlds, too. And so they're able to change their conscious wavelength and come down to the third dimension and come and visit us. I suspect we've all heard of the Roswell incident in July of 1947. And the reason that Roswell happened is because Roswell was the home of the 508th Army Squadron that was capable of carrying the atomic bomb. And that's why they came and took a look at Roswell, because when you start splitting matter apart, you're violating a galactic law. You're also messing with the filaments that connects all of space together, too, through which they travel and through which they communicate. And so it's simple enough to say that they didn't like that very much. And they realized that we were the equivalent of, you know, a room full of kids playing with loaded guns. And they were coming here to see who are these idiots that are splitting matter apart in total violation of galactic law. That's probably one of the great reasons that they come to visit us. But also, I have a chapter in my book. To me, it was just fascinating to research, and I still find it fascinating to think about it and to talk about it, where I'm focusing on the benevolent ET races who come here because they're really trying absolutely their very best to help us. 
And it goes back to the 1950s, to the early 1950s. And they decided early on that they were getting nowhere fast really trying to communicate with our governments. And so it was much more useful in their view to connect with individuals who were much more spiritually attuned and could hear and resonate with the message. And what they were saying back in the 1950s is that there is a galactic super wave that is coming in and it's going to dramatically affect the entire solar system. And absolutely, it's going to dramatically affect planet Earth. It's going to dramatically raise the vibratory rate. And in so doing, it's going to cause a displacement process. And they came here to forewarn us about all of that. This is going on way back in the 1950s. So to just unpack that a little bit, there was a Canadian scientist by the name of W.B. Smith. He was actually commissioned by the Canadian government (laughs) to go out and research the UFO phenomenon. I think the only one who ever was, you know, hired by our government to take a look at this. And what he quickly realized is that, you know, it's one thing, he even had pieces of the Roswell records, but I mean, so what? What about people who have really been contacted? What do they have to say about this? And so he realized that a good place to look would be in Joshua Tree, California, where annually they had these UFO conferences that were huge. The typical attendance was about 5,000 people, and a whole lot of these people claimed to be contactees. And so W.B. Smith would go there, and he would communicate with these people, and he was told all these incredible stories. And he's going, well, you know, it sounds pretty interesting but is it really real? So what he did was he devised a hundred part questionnaire that, you know, this was to sort out who really was a contactee from those who were just saying they were. And if you were a contactee, you would answer these 100 questions in a certain way. And what he got back was some rather amazing correspondence that proved to him that the people who said, I've been in contact and still am in contact with ETs, this 100-part questionnaire definitely confirmed that they were real to him. But even more interesting in a lot of ways is that he made friends with a big name author, a guy by the name of George Hunt Williamson. I believe that was his name. Last name is Williamson. And his most out there book was called Road in the Sky. And Williamson was definitely a contactee. And so he and W.B. Smith became good friends, shared a lot of information. And I put a lot of that in my book. And it's just, you know, basically to cut to the quick, it's what I'm saying here is is that what the ETs, the benevolent ones were telling us way back in the 1950s is that, hey, there's going to be some real changes going on here on planet Earth. And they were coming here to help us to get ready to prepare for it. And these are the changes that are going in right now. As the secret space program details it, it's common knowledge to them that there is this galactic, as they call it, super wave that is coming in and dramatically impacting everything and everyone on the Earth. It's because it's at the end of the age. It's because our planet Earth is at the end of this third 25,000-year cycle, and it's ready either to be harvested in one way or the other. And here we go into the whole thing about are we going to make it into the fourth dimension? Those who don't, what's going to happen to them? And that's a rather fascinating thing to look at, too. Mm -hmm. So how do we go about, you know, on an individual level and collectively, I mean, a, a critical mass level to this and How do we go about making the transition from our three-dimensional to fourth-dimensional level? And what's holding us back at this point? Is it just just our old dunce hood, or are there elements that are keeping us back 
from yeah there's from well awakening. what's holding what's holding us back is that again we have an entire planet filled with people who in you know what happened here on earth does not normally happen this is what the law of one says anyway but it was about the only possibility so all these misfits backstabbing misfits from maldek and from mars came here but not only those two planets but other planets also so that's one factor right there Another factor is the Cabal or the Illuminati, as they're oftentimes called. I have a whole chapter on them. I don't want to go into that right now, but they've been holding us back and hoarding the sacred knowledge for their own personal gain for a long, long time. But to cut it down to a personal level, really the shift that you and I individually and collectively need to make, and it's much easier now due to the tremendous raising of the vibratory rate, but it's much easier to make the shift from living out of our reactive mind and moving back into our true master, the heartfelt connection to source, our higher self, where we have access to all the higher vibratory rates of unconditional love and acceptance and compassion and joyfulness. So just to go back there for a moment to unpack this, when we're living out of our reactive mind, the reactive mind does not connect the dots. It does not see wholeness. It's literally seeing the present through the eyes of the past. And what I mean by that, it's seeing the present through the unresolved emotional trauma that everyone to some degree, emotional and oftentimes physical trauma that we suffered as a child. Now, to dig a little bit deeper in that, we exist in threeness. There's higher self, there's middle self, and there is lower self. When we're living life out of our reactive mind, we are in the middle self. Now, the name of the game is to wake up enough to be able to connect with our higher self. But in order to do that, you first have to go down. You first have to go down to the lower self, which is the inner child, and heal the unresolved emotional trauma that, to some degree or another, we all experienced as children. We were all conditioned to be less than our true nature. And so what I mean by the mind, the reactive mind, doesn't know the present, doesn't connect the dots, it sees the present through the eyes of the past, is that it sees the present through the unresolved emotional trauma of our childhood. And it will continue to do so in the unaware, unawake state. We don't know, and we don't know that we don't know, and we just think that that's the way life is. Well, it's not the way life is. It is a function of the unquestioned, unwitting context, or lens, if you will, that we are looking through life. And if we can become aware enough, cognizant enough to begin to realize that, now we have an opportunity to do something about it. And really, that's where my breath alchemy, my breathwork technique, comes in. It's perhaps not the only technique on the planet that's capable of raising your vibratory rate, but it's dramatically effective. And to just stay with the quick for a moment, that's really the name of the game right now, is raising our vibratory rate enough. And the only way you can do that is to heal to transmute the unresolved emotional energy, trauma and drama that still continues to recreate itself in the present moment. And so the point being then is that the mind, the reactive mind, when we're living life out of our reactive mind, we do not know the present moment. We're either seeing the present through the eyes of the past or we're stuck in anxiety of some terrible event that might happen in the future if we don't, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So there is no present moment for the reactive mind. The higher self connected to source, connected to all that is, on the other hand, only knows the present moment and it only knows unity. 
the reactive mind does not know unity. It's in a continual state of judgment. So there's a huge, huge difference right there. It's the difference between going through the motions and living life as a creative adventure, as an exciting adventure, which is only available to you coming from the present moment, which is the only moment that the higher self is available to us. And I submit that that is the shift that we need to make. Now, to not make that sound, you know, unattainable or holy cow, you have to sit on a mountaintop for the next 12 years and meditate 24 hours a day to get there. No, not at all. One of the great points that the law of one makes is that once we begin to wake up enough, there is a fundamental choice that needs to be made. And the choice is that you can either be of service to self or you can be of service to the greater good. Now, life doesn't say no you cannot be of service to self. You cannot be in a what's in it for me and I don't care about you sort of mentality. You can do that, but there's a hell of a karmic debt that you're going to be spending many, many different reincarnations trying to resolve. And so that's going to hold you back for a long, long time. If we become aware enough to realize that all there is is oneness, all there really is is unity, and therefore what we do in harm to another person is really only harming ourselves. That's the law of karma right there. And so it's the natural extension to become aware enough to become committed to service to the greater good. And so what the law of one goes on to say is that's the fundamental choice. And in order to be ascension ready, you can still be, you know, what's in it for me as much as 49% of the time, but at least 51% of the time needs to be committed to service to the greater good. And they say that 51% is enough. You'll make it through. Well, that's a good part of the answer right there, and that goes a long way to the creation of, as you point out, absolutely, the creation of the critical mass. It's the hundredth monkey theory. Once enough people latch on, you know, so to speak, the hundredth monkey, then the entire population begins to become a reflection of the greater good, and bingo, there we go. It's possible that we might even be able to ascend as one, and I do believe that we're on that timetable. All you need is a critical mass. And I do feel that we are on that pathway, as improbable as it might seem. So I would just submit that we live in rather amazing times. Yes, rather chaotic. Well, that's the nature of the game. When, <laughs> when, uh, when there's this galactic super wave coming in and stirring everything up, that's what creates the 100th monkey. Because it's not until you bring the darkness to the surface that you can begin to transmute it into the light, both individually and collectively into the light of your conscious awareness and into the light of our collective and individual conscious awareness. The principle is very simple. Darkness cannot survive in the presence of light. When it's allowed to continue to lurk in the darkness, there it does quite well. But you create a vast displacement process with this galactic super wave coming in, and that starts stirring things up, creating a displacement process where the denser vibratory rates of resentment and fear and limiting beliefs individually and collectively start coming to the surface. A very necessary, very necessary thing that has to happen so that it can be transmuted into the light of our conscious awareness. And I will submit that this is what's going on. And in the process of doing that, things can look rather chaotic. And I realize full well 
you know, I'm very well grounded and I work with people on a daily basis and I can see when they first come to me, yeah, things are rather chaotic in their life, to say the least. But I show them how to transmute that energy and create a rather powerful individual transformation. Well, I would submit that that transformation is going on globally, too. And I do believe we're on course. I think we're going to be okay. Yeah, it seems like there are a lot of us who have already made that shift at least to some degree. And and yep. if it's only 51% necessary, to me, it, it seems like most of the people I know are already there, if not well beyond there. I, I shouldn't say most of the people I know, but most of the people I hang out with. So do you have a sense of the population, you know, how many people have reached that level at this point? Well, there is without question a great awakening that's going on on a global scale. It, and it depends on how you define, you know, what is awake and what isn't. I would make a distinction. I'm not talking about positive thinking. Positive thinking has some value to it, but only very limited value, because ultimately what it does is it puts an even thicker barrier between your conscious and subconscious mind. And it's only when you're willing to open up and allow the darkness buried deeply in the subconscious mind to come to the surface, then and only then can it be transmuted into the light. And what I mean by transmuted is just that it is absolutely possible. It's contained within each and every one of us. It's our own innate ability to transmute the fears and the limitations and the resentments and all the stuff that's incomplete that we're holding on to, to literally take that energy that is life detracting energy and transmute it into life enhancing energy. So you can get off of spinning your wheels and get on with it because it puts you into the present moment and it reconnects you through your heartfelt connection to source through your higher self and helps to reestablish the true nature of your being, that you're one with everything. As the law of one puts it, you and I are a fully functioning hologram of the one infinite creator. It's all within us. And so it's just in these quickening times, it's just a matter of discovering and then mastering our innate ability to transmute this energy, both individually and collectively. And so the question is, well, how many people have been able to do that? You know, I don't know. I don't know what the numbers are, but I do know that there is a great awakening. And I also know that you don't have to be totally and completely enlightened in order to make it into the higher worlds. I mean, in law of one terms, the entrance requirement is not that high. You have to be totally committed. You have to, you have to be of 100% intention, you know, to be the best version of yourself that you can be. But if you can step into being of service to others at least 51% of the time, you know, more committed to the greater good than you are to, I'm going to rip you off and I don't care what happens to you. <laughs> you know, that's uh, that's the old way and it's not working. It never did work. And it's, it's certainly not going to work in these accelerated times. So at least 51% of the time, if we can make it into, I'm here for you, I'm here for the greater good, that brings out your best qualities. That helps to turn life out of just going through the motions into an exciting adventure. And by that definition, I think there's a whole lot of people out there who are seeing and living, you know, out of their service, service to others, service to the greater good. So it sounds like it's like the ability to be present with what is as opposed yeah, there to you go. getting, Yo, getting those are, lost, that's great. Yeah. Getting lost in intellectual or egoic abstractions. And also yeah. and part of that is also being stuck in old past trauma. 
patterns. Well, it's all being stuck in old past trauma. And so the reliving, that's going to reduce you to living life out of your reactive mind, which does not know the present moment. It's in a concealed state of judgment. And because it doesn't know the present moment, it's only living life conceptually. It's like if you go into the restaurant and you sit down and the waiter or the waitress comes to you and said, well, here's the menu. You know that in the menu, what you're given is a conceptual representation of the various meals that are available to you. And so you're able to, in the restaurant, make the distinction between the menu, the conceptual representation of the meal and the actual meal that the waiter or the waitress brings to you. But in the game of life, we don't make that distinction at all. In the game of life, when you're living life out of your reactive mind, people are eating the menu. No kidding. When you don't make a distinction between the concepts of reality and the actual thing itself, you're not living life as a presence. You're living life as a concept, and you're not even making the distinction. And so that's another way of looking at the shift that we need to make. We need to get out of our heads. We need to stop living life out of a reactive mind, which is not who we are, which does not know the present moment, which is stuck in eating the menu (laughs) into the present moment where life is an experience. It is not a concept. Okay? Mm -hmm. And it's only in the present moment does experience show up. Right. And also having enough anchoring in the present to be able to maintain that to some degree in the face of all the challenges that we're facing at this point. Well, if you can stay present, uh, everything is coming through you. Your connection to source is an infinite supply of you name it, joyfulness, inner peace, knowing what you need to know, when you need to know it. And it's not believing, it's not thinking, it's true innate knowledge. It's true innate intuitive knowledge. It comes to you in a way that you know it much, much deeper than it's just something that you think or you've memorized or that you believe, which is, you know, not very high up the scale. It's just still living life conceptually. So it's the distinction between conceptual living and living life as a living experiential presence. It's only available in the present moment. When you're connected to source, you've got everything you need, and it's all coming through you. It's not a function anymore of looking to your outside authority for answers, of looking to your circumstances. You know, if only this would improve, if only I get a better job, if only, you know, et cetera, et cetera, then my life will turn out. No, your life already has turned out, and it's just a matter of making this shift so that the greater good comes through you. The answers you need, the wisdom you need is coming through you. It's coming right through you from source. And that's quite distinct from living life conceptually. And so from our 3D perspective, that would mean connecting through our heart because that's like a portal to all the other dimensions. Absolutely, exactly, yeah. And it's direct experiential. And even if we get, you know, knocked off balance and, and back into, into fear, if we have enough connection, heart connection, we can, we can feel our way back by, by realizing how, I mean, to use the metaphor of the menu, you know, sitting down at a restaurant, eating the menu and going, oh, that's awful. Yeah, right. <laughs> Well, what I've learned and what I teach is that, first of all, to be clear, you will still get triggered. I still get triggered. However, not nearly as much, not nearly as often. And when I do, I do not dwell on it because I now have the tools, the ability to climb out of it on a very, very quick basis. Because I'm not talking about positive thinking. I'm talking about the ability to transmute that triggered energy into life-enhancing energy so I can rediscover presence, oftentimes immediately. And so that's 
just a huge, huge advantage to have in your toolkit. And uh, so grateful that, you know, it's available to us. I'll tell you, I've lived and walked many long miles in the shoes of being stuck in the polarized mind. And so I've been there and I've done that. I know what it's like. And I know what it's like to get triggered into, you know, to be living totally out of the reactive mind and to once you get triggered, which is a whole lot, and to just dwell on it. I mean, you know, there's stuff that people have been stuck on and have dwelled on day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year. Well, what if you discovered and mastered your innate ability to, if you do get triggered, to transmute that energy back into life-enhancing energy so you can rediscover the present moment and truly be present again in your life? That might be worth taking a look at, eh? Yeah, and also remembering that that's not the experience that we want to be having because we've had enough of the real experience in our lives to remember, to experience the contrast of those experiences and go, no, I don't want, I don't want to be here anymore. Like for yeah. me, about 15 years ago, I went through an extremely painful separation and that was the catalyst. That was, that was probably the biggest catalyst for me to realizing that I never wanted to allow anything or any kind of experience to cause me to shut down my heart. Yeah, well, for many of us, that's kind of what it takes. You know, painting yourself into a corner where there's no way out. That was certainly true in my in my situation. And oftentimes, and interestingly enough, the law of one is very, very clear about this. But I didn't need the law of one to tell me that. I knew about this stuff way before I ever started digging into the law of one. But it's the whole idea of just recognizing that, you know, we have to get off this cycle of constant judgment, good and evil, and, and this is good and that's bad. And just to recognize, to begin to recognize that everything is all interconnected, no matter how good it might seem or no matter how bad it might seem. And so that includes no matter how bad or how dark it might seem or how much you've painted yourself into a corner, perhaps it's the exact scenario that you needed in order to give yourself enough motivation, enough 100% intention to find a way to get through this mess and discover your true nature. I mean, so, you know, there's a purpose and there's a reason for absolutely everything. But you have to come out of the constantative judgment in order to begin to see that everything is whole and everything is complete in its own right. And whatever happens in our lives, both individually and collectively, has a greater purpose. And if we can align with the greater purpose, then we can learn how to turn lemons into lemonade, so to speak, to speak to the ability to learn how to transmute energy into life-enhancing energy so we can get on with it. Right. But it requires being able to be present with what is right now, no matter how painful it might be, and to not argue and try and fight with reality, to just accept what it is right now. And from that place of acceptance, we can then move on to changing things rather than reacting from a place of ignorance or fear where we're trying to force things to change through our kind of three-dimensional thinking, like to use that old Einstein quote, yeah, you can't solve your problems with the same level of awareness that created them. So what you're speaking to here is the necessity of moving out of victim consciousness and into source consciousness. And fundamental to that is taking responsibility for the fact that whether understood or not, you and I are creating the reality unerringly. 
Every single thing that happens in our life is a function of our creation, whether you realize it or not. I go into that in great detail through what I call the law of cause and effect. And what the law of cause and effect says is that you always get what you want. There's no exceptions. Now, you might be going, what? Just a minute. Why would I want to create the bad in my life? Well, always creating what you want, there's no exception, means both subconscious mind and subconscious. Now, the mind is like the iceberg. 10% of it is conscious, 90% of it's below the surface you don't see, and the 90% below the surface you don't see is that reactive stuff that we're still acting out that is a function of the unresolved emotional drama from the inner child, from childhood. And so it speaks to the necessity of taking responsibility. Whether you understand you created this or not, you did. And so it's just absolutely essential to take responsibility for it, to own it. Then and only then do you stop being a victim. Then and only then can you stop blaming others. And then and only then do you put the personal power back into your own hands. And then and only then can you begin to do something about it. And the second step in the way out of that is after responsibility is to let go of the judgment is to begin to realize that what's going on here has a greater purpose. And then that allows you to step into the third step, which is the ability that we all have contained within us to learn how to transmute that energy. The stuck energy that had become life detracting energy that had been keeping you spinning your wheels to learn to transmute that energy into life enhancing energy so you can rediscover wholeness and presence and just your, you know, living life uh, well, it's, it's the shift from a black and white world to a world in living colors like that. Yeah, and recognizing that whatever we're experiencing in the outer world, whether we like it or not, it's just a reflection of our level of consciousness. And as you yeah. said, for most of us, most of that is coming from the unconscious part of ourselves. Well, it's all coming from the unconscious part, all the reactive stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. life is a big classroom. It's, it's useful to look at life as though you're looking at a mirror. Everything that you and I see out there is nothing but an outward reflection of really what's going on within us. And so if there's something that's going on that is less than desirable to you, what I'm saying here with regard to what I call the law of cause and effect is that it's incumbent upon us to begin to realize that that's an outward reflection of what's going on within us. So it's my discomfort that I need to begin to take a look at. And when you begin to see it that way, you begin to realize that you've just been given a gift. My goodness, to see it as a mirror, that it's an outward reflection. People out there are acting out for me what I need to discover about myself and learn about myself. You begin to go, thank you very much. And then to go inward and to transmute that energy once you learn how to do that. Yeah, life becomes an exciting adventure. It really does. Yes. So let's talk about the process of transmuting that stuff as we begin to discover it and reflect on it and recognize that it's coming from inside of ourselves and mm -hmm. how we can access what's inside of ourselves and transmute the energy that that has, in a very real sense, has gotten stuck in our bodies. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Well, good question. And so what I teach is, is breath alchemy. So I'll share what I know and what I teach. And that is that I will just assert that, uh, I'll just say it, that the greatest problem we have on the planet today is the continual state of judgment that we're in. And that every time you and I judge something, what it does, well, there's two components to it. There's the mental component. There's the, this thing or this person really is bad and wrong. And then you very much tend to believe you're make wrong. You know, I'm right 
and you're wrong and eh, the emotional charge that usually goes with that. Well, what that does is it creates instantly a corresponding energetic component in the body, a pattern of energy, or very simply a feeling. Now, because the instantly created feeling or pattern of energy is connected to the make-wrong thought, which is a negative thought, obviously, the instantly generated energy or feeling can only be an unpleasant feeling. And you and I are conditioned thoroughly to want to feel good. And so in the absence of any integrative technique about the only thing that's available to us is to do everything we can to try and distance ourselves from feeling that energy. Well, it doesn't go away. It continues to live in the body in the form of stuck energy. Now, you stop and consider the number of times that an average person has judged someone or something, made something or somebody wrong, in other words, you begin to realize that there's a whole lot of stuck energy living in people's bodies that most people do not know what to do with. So with the breath alchemy technique, what I teach is that there's two fundamental universal principles here. One is called the resistance principle. And what it says is that anytime you and I resist something, it will persist. In other words, you're only going to get more of what you don't like, more of what you don't want. And that includes trying to distance yourself from the unpleasant feeling that doesn't feel good. You're only going to get more of it. You don't like it. You don't want it. It's not going away. It's going to re-trigger itself, usually in very inappropriate ways and, you know, times when you least want it. So resistance equals persistence. But the flip side of that is what I call the harmonizing principle. And that says that if you can allow yourself to recreate on a feeling level primarily, that's which you've spent a good deal of your life avoiding feeling, resisting, and only spinning your wheels as a result. If you can learn to invite it in and recreate it, you can discover your innate ability to transmute its energy. Speaking of transmuting energy, this is the Magical Mystery Tour on WGDR Plainfield and WGDH Hardwick, Central Vermont Community Radio. I'm talking with Bob Frissell. He's the author of Catching the Ascension Wave, everything you need to know about the coming Great Awakening. And so the five-step harmonizing method that I teach is the practical application of the harmonizing principle. And the first step is what I call circular breathing, where you learn to breathe in a certain way that connects you with source energy. Now, source energy is life force energy. It's the very energy of life throughout the universe. If we didn't have source energy, most commonly called prana, there would not be life. So it's the most vital, it's the most powerful, it's the most healing energy we have throughout the cosmos. And to be clear, we do take prana in, but as a result of all this suppression and stuck energy in our body, our breathing becomes very shallow and very inhibited, and we're taking in life energy or prana, yes, but only in very small amounts, never in large enough amounts to begin to discover our innate ability to transmute energy. So circular breathing opens up your breathing to allow vast amounts of this prana, this life force energy, to come flowing through your body. And so the second through the fifth step is learning how to harmonize with this increased energy flow coming through your body so you can produce the result. The second step is called complete relaxation where what you do is you just relax completely in the presence of just feeling this increased energy flow in your body. The third step, I call it awareness and detail, 
where you tune into and open up your inner feeling sense to just let yourself feel your inner body from head to toe, to feel it thoroughly, to feel it completely, to feel the increased energy flow, and to just feel that your body is alive and it's got all this energy moving through it. The fourth step is just you got to stop making the feeling wrong. The only way you can allow yourself to feel with detailed awareness the sensations in your body is that, remember, they were there in the form of stuck energy. Now the prana is creating a displacement process, bringing them up from suppression to give you an opportunity to revisit them so you can transmute their energy. But the only way you can do that is you have to feel it in detail and have a thorough experience of the feeling. The only way you can do that is you've got to find a more useful way of relating to the feeling than making it wrong. You have to find a way to honor its presence, no matter what it feels like, no matter where it is in your body, no exception. You have to find a way to let the feeling be exactly the way it is. So you stop trying to control it, you stop trying to get rid of it, and you learn to embrace it. Then and only then can you feel it fully and thoroughly and accurately and honestly, which is the requirement for the integration of or the transmutation of that energy. Uh, The fifth step is to say it very simply, you don't have to do any of the first four steps perfectly because the most important and the only real entrance requirement is your 100% intention, your 100% willingness to just go for inner peace and to rediscover your inner creativity and your inner connection to source and to begin to live life as a living presence, as an exciting adventure again. So if you have that willingness, your mind and body seek peace anyway. The five steps is just a technique to get you there. And what it results in is a transmutation of just, oh, goodness sakes, tons and tons and tons of stuck energy every what I call completed energy cycle. If we had a scale of 1 to 10, where if you're at a 10, that means you are feeling calm, you are feeling present, you are feeling totally relaxed, and you're feeling at the very least great and hopefully fantastic, and you're at least a 10 on the scale of 1 to 10, that is what I call a completed energy cycle. So it's not done with a cognitive understanding. It's done entirely at the feeling level in the body because life is not a figure-it-out conceptual process. Life is a feeling-level experiential process, and it works. Mm-hmm. Talk about the intuitive aspect of Yeah, so it's not done with your mind. None of this is done with your mind. It's, it's just a function of just letting go, really trusting and letting go, and trusting that you do have a connection to source, and getting into the feel of it, getting into the flow of it. You know, it's like... I love working with musicians because they know exactly what rhythm is. And they know that, you know, a great musician, if you don't have rhythm, you're not going to be worth listening to. So rhythm is really important. But what is rhythm? Well, it's just truly a function of letting go and trusting and getting in touch with your innate ability to just literally become one with the music. You know, just like the world's greatest golfers are totally, completely one with the golf ball as they're hitting it, as they're swinging it. Yeah, they spend many, many hours on the practice tee. You could say that's mechanical, but once they're hitting it, you better let the mechanics go and get into the absolute flow of it. So it's an intuitive breathing, and you want to get into the feel, you want to get into the flow of it, and to just completely let go allows you to get there. And that puts you into the present moment. And it's only in the present moment where you're able to just really connect with and harmonize with every every nuance of sensation in your body. So cognitive understanding is not required. You don't need to know where it came from or why it's there. You don't need any of that stuff. 
All you need is just to let go, get into the flow, allow the prana to begin to circulate through your body, and then to discover your innate ability to harmonize with it, which puts you absolutely in the moment. And it's only in the moment that the feel, the flow, the total let go is there. And that's where the result happens. Because it's then and only then that you're able to feel with detailed awareness in a way that's in total harmony with what you're feeling. And just allowing your body to be, it's just like you're being given a concert of sensations. And you treat every nuance of sensation like it's valuable, like it's important, like it's absolutely worthy of your attention to just really feel and and to just, just be present with. Yeah. Yeah, that's what it's all about. And you use the term circular breathing, but you, you don't mean the kind of circular breathing that like didgeridoo players no. have to do. <laughs> no, I so, don't. <laughs> so what, what do you mean by that? Well, it's, it's where the inhale and the exhale are connected. There's no pauses. What you do is you pull the inhale very firmly, yet very smoothly and very evenly at the same time. And so it's a totally inhale-oriented breath. And when I say pull it, I mean you do pull it firmly, but it's very smoothly and it's very even. So it's not forced or it's not jerk. And then at the end of the inhale, there's no pause. The inhale, it just rounds off and it merges into and becomes the exhale. And on the exhale, there's no control at all. It's a function of relaxation and relaxation alone, at the end of which there's no pause. It rounds off, it merges, it becomes the inhale again. So it becomes this unbroken circle. Now, that's quite distinct from the way people normally breathe. People normally are exhale-oriented breathers because, like I suggested earlier, when you've got all this stuck energy in your body that doesn't feel good and you do everything you can to avoid feeling it, holding your breath or becoming very shallow in your breathing is one of the more effective ways of keeping it suppressed. But there is definitely a price to pay for it, too. And so you become an exhale-oriented breather, where the inhale is never, ever pulled. The inhale is almost kind of like an afterthought, where it's let in, never pulled, and then usually a long pause. And the exhale is always considerably longer than the inhale, and the exhale is controlled. And then there's a long pause again. So not much prana, and really, frankly, not enough oxygen to really serve you as being available to the body. So inhale-oriented or circular breathing, is it completely corrects that. It's totally inhale-oriented. Again, you pull firmly, yet very smoothly and evenly on the inhale, and then completely relax on the exhale without pause. Now, to me, it's analogous to an elevator ride. If you can imagine that you walk into a building, and right in front of you is the elevator. Now, let's just imagine there's nobody else in the building. It's just you and the elevator. So you get on the elevator, and you want to take it up. What you expect from that ride up is for the elevator to pull you up firmly, yet you expect it also to be a very smooth and a very even ride. If it's herky and jerky, you're going to take the stairs the next time. And on the descent on the elevator, you expect it to be a very smooth and even descent coming down. Well, that's circular breathing, only it's without pause. So it's like that. And you said there's an intuitive element. Does that relate to the speed of the breathing? Yeah, there's two main adjustments that you have with regard to the breathing, and it's done intuitively. Because the more you trust and the more you relax and let go, the more your higher self comes in and starts doing the breathing for you. I mean, that's literally what the experience feels like, because that is what's happening. And so you could do it mechanically. 
But if you're trusting and letting go enough and your higher self comes in and starts literally breathing you, then the two main adjustments happen automatically. And the two primary adjustments that we have is the fullness by which you take each inhale and also the length by which you take each inhale. So you could break it down. There's really three main offshoots of that. You can take a slow and full inhale, and the exhale would be a reflection of that. Or you can speed it up so it's much faster and still maintain the fullness. Or you can keep it at a faster speed with a much shallower exhale. And each serves its distinct purpose. You can do it mechanically, but you're far better off just letting your higher self do it for you because it knows exactly and perfectly how to make those adjustments. They happen automatically. And it's pretty amazing how that happens once you just truly relax and, and just let go. So when you say mechanically, you mean when we're trying to control it? Yeah, you got to let go of control. It's only when you let go of control, which is not real control, then and only then do you discover true control. Which is actually releasing ourselves into the present. Yeah, exactly. True control is no control at all. It's, it's being in, in tune with the infinite awareness coming through your higher self. Yeah. And that's where awakening arises out of oh yeah yeah that's the life begins to show up again it really right. does. that's that's the real beginning of everything well yeah yeah the, i mean if you if you if you, if you want to take it that far that's absolutely true yeah for sure and then, and until then we've just been living a false existence in our uh-huh head. yeah you know way back in the 1970s i came across an author by the name of alan watts and my favorite of Alan Watts' books is a book called The Book. What a great name for a book. And the subtitle on it is on the taboo against knowing who you are. And Alan Watts tells a really great story in there about what he calls the game of hide-and-seek, about how God likes to play the game of hide-and-seek, where what he and she does is hide him herself in the form of you and me. But you want to make the game fun and you want to make it interesting. And so the best way to make it fun and interesting is to forget that you did it. So you hide yourself in the form of you and me and then you forget you did it. And then it's a question of how many eons or how many lifetimes it's going to take for you to wake up and remember. Well, what it's really addressing is the shift from when you forget that you did it, you start living life out of your reactive mind. And when you wake up and remember, now you begin to remember that your reactive mind is always and only a faithful servant, not your master. And your true master is your connection to source, your higher self. And life starts showing up again. And now you realize, oh, yeah, I'm God in disguise. And now I remember, oh, yes, that was a fun game. I loved Ellen Watts. Yeah, me too. And I, I love that notion of God in whatever way, shape, or form plays that game of hide and seek with yeah, him or well, there's, herself. There's nothing, out, there's nothing outside of the infinite creator. Right. You and I and everyone Except, and everything is a fully functioning hologram of the infinite creator. The law of one makes that very, very clear. They talk about the galactic logos, logos, a, a term for love. It also means creation. It also means oneness. It also means infinite creator. They talk about the galactic logos, which is the mind of the galaxy, which shapes the, you might say, the curriculum of all the beings in that galaxy. And then there's the solar logos, which is the suns in the solar systems, which are alive and conscious, eighth dimensional beings. And then there is the sub-logos, as they call it, which are all the planets which are alive and well. And then the sub-sub-logos, which is you and I, humanity. 
and no matter how high, logos down to sub-sub-logos, everyone and everything is a fully functioning hologram of the one infinite creator. It is all within every single one of us. We all know that with regard to a hologram, you can take a hologram and you can cut it into, say, four separate pieces and sign a laser through each of those four pieces. And and what you're going to do is get a smaller version of the whole. So the whole is contained in each piece, no matter how many pieces you cut it into. No matter how many sub-logos we, you and I are, we are still a fully functioning hologram of the infinite creator. It is all within us. And so when we're playing the game of God hiding him or himself, well, you know, I suppose it gets kind of boring just being in full awareness of your true nature all the time. So sometimes it's kind of fun to play the game of hide and seek. But then after the game has gone on long enough, it would be okay to wake up again. And that's what's going on on the planet here. Yeah, and so these, you called them Draco reptilians, they're also aspects of God playing hide-and-seek with himself or yeah, herself. they are, but you can take it too far to the point to where you do reach a point of no return. And so, we'll just, just let's go back to the actual scenario of when the, of when the ascension happens. Question is, is everyone going to make it through or not? And the law of one is very, very clear on that, that, you know, we need to wake up to be very straight about it, and that there is one possible scenario where it is absolutely possible for us in one shining moment to come together, in one flash of brilliant light, to come together as a whole and ascend as a whole. Although it's not very likely, it absolutely is possible. And I do believe that we're on a timeline where if not everyone is going to make it through, most people will make it through because the critical mass will be reached. And if you're 51% at least more concerned about contributing to the greater good than what's in it for me, then you're going to make it through. But there perhaps still will be those who are not ascension ready. They will be taken to another third density planet. And I refer in the book to a book written in 1996 called Cosmic Voyage, which is written by a man by the name of Courtney Brown, who discovered through his remote viewing adventures that this is indeed what was happening. Now, at first, I didn't really put much credence into that book because I didn't really trust remote viewing. But I dug a little deeper and I began to realize that good remote viewers are 100% accurate on terrestrial viewings. That's pretty good. And they're up to 99% accurate when they're looking at off-planet sources. Well, that's pretty good, too. And so what he was viewing was these scenarios. One race of beings that we know as the greys, or certain versions of the greys, one of their main functions seems to be doing just that. And that is coming in to planets that are going through ascension for people who are not ascension ready and just replacing them, time traveling them and recloning their bodies into bodies that are more suitable for the third density planet that they're going to and transporting them there. He actually witnessed this, and he saw a lot more, too, that is really great. So that takes care of most everyone. But there is a small group of people that, according to the Law of One, they have just gone too far. The Draco Reptilians would be included in that group, and the Cabal or the Illuminati also would be included in that group, because they have just, again, they've gone too far. I mean, as we wake up, that's part of the waking up that we need to come to the realization to, that these guys behind the scenes have been controlling and manipulating us in ways that you just absolutely would not believe. Hoarding the sacred knowledge, keeping it for themselves, talk about it, what's in it for me, and I don't care about you mentality. 
Well, what's going to happen and what does happen, and this is coming from the law of one, it's coming from other sources too, is that there will be earth changes on the planet. Now, we've all heard perhaps of the pole shift. Most of us have any, or well, a lot of us anyway. But also, there is a solar flash that happens where the sun increases in intensity by at least a thousandfold for about 10 seconds, and it literally fries the planet on a third dimensional level. And if you've gone that far, I'm sorry, you're going to have to live through all of that. But they're the only ones who will. It's not me saying it. That's the law of one saying it. And in regard to once we have achieved a certain level of, let's say, fourth dimension awareness, we are no longer subject to the influence and controlling effects of those Dracos or other... They can't make it through. They cannot. I mean here. In present time. Okay. Well, uh, there's a transmutation that has to occur. First of all, you cannot make it through in flesh and blood. I'm not a student of the Bible, but George Hunt Williamson in his book, The Road in the Sky, had some very fascinating biblical quotes in there that make it very clear, and I put them in my book, that make it very clear that flesh and blood can't make it through. You have to go transmute into what is called a light body so that you can raise your vibratory rate to the point to where you will ascend. And you cannot do that if you're full of fear and if you're motivated to into what's in it for me, and I don't care about you mentality. It's not possible. You have to be pure enough in order to be able to transmute or transcend into a light body. Then when you go through, you're going to be entering into a world. We're going to go through an amazing, amazing series of transformations that's all contained in our DNA and we'll know exactly what to do. But when we get into the fourth dimensional reality, we're going to be entering into a world, like I suggested earlier, that is at least a hundred times more harmonious in every single way then life here is on the third dimension. And you can't bring your fears and limitations with you. That's all going to get transmuted in. It all happens in a moment. I mean, it's like, by way of analogy, you can look at the butterfly, for example. You know, you could look at the caterpillar and you could talk to them. You could say, hey, caterpillar, you know, why don't you learn to fly? Caterpillars sitting there going, are you crazy? Uh, Caterpillars can't fly. But the other side of the transformation, the butterflies are just too busy doing it. I mean, look at the monarch butterflies. Those guys are amazing. They fly all over the place, thousands of miles at a time. It's unbelievable. But that's the nature of transformation. I like that. That's a great analogy. And for people who maybe find some aspects of it to be pretty far out, the essential part is about our own inner awakening. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's all pretty far out and you can believe it or accept it or or not. I'm not asking you to believe or accept anything, but you're right. The bottom line is that there is a great awakening here. And if you learn to catch the wave and to ride with it, life becomes an exciting adventure. If you want to stay stuck in the old ways, it's going to become a pretty rough ride. And for many people, it already is. So the writing is on the wall. And my book gives you the blueprint for what it is and a very useful way of moving through it. Yeah, because we're not going to solve the current crises that we've created for ourselves the way we've been dealing with things. Nope. Einstein said it perfectly. You cannot solve your problems with the same level of awareness that created them. And and uh, Chinese proverb says it too. It says if we don't change our direction, we're likely to end up where we're headed. So it's time to make a shift. And because with this extreme acceleration of energy, 
I mean, possibilities exist that absolutely were not here as little as 10, 20 years ago. So it could be the energy of this galactic superwave could be the catalyst that shift us from our 51% service to the common good to full awakening instantaneously. It's the waking of humanity's heart. It's the movement from the polarized mind, which is in a continual state of judgment and doesn't connect the dots, moving to wholeness to the heart, which is connected to source, which only knows unity. And that's it right there. I mean, all there is permeating through all of life is the one spirit. Every aspect of life is an integral aspect of the one spirit moving through everything. And so that's what the cosmic wave coming through is. It's not just this planet. This is something that happens on all third-dimensional planets. We're not unique. This happens to all planets. And it's just our time and our turn. And you catch the wave, and life becomes an exciting adventure, period. And thank you so much for being on the show. It's been fascinating to talk with you. Yeah, well, it's been good talking to you, and I'm really grateful that you invited me to be on the show. So thank you very much for having me. Bob Frisell is the founder of the Breath Alchemy Technique and has been teaching breath work for over 35 years. And he's the author of Nothing in This Book is True, but is exactly the way things are. And his new book is Catching the Ascension Wave, Everything You Need to Know About the Coming Great Awakening.
freedom from fear. You free yourself from fear by cowering in your physical body for eternity. Your body is a boat to lay aside when you reach the far shore. Or sell it if you can find a pool. It's full of holes. It's full of holes. Suffering and despair. 